0: BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back.
1: Hello, and welcome to Red Box, the political podcast on the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. This week, I'm joined by Oliver Cam, leader writer and columnist for the Times, Sam Coates, deputy political editor, and Catherine Philp, diplomatic correspondent. This week, we're talking about war with Spain trading with the rest of the world and politicians who pretend things are happening when they aren't and say things aren't happening when they really are. But we begin with Catherine Philp.
2: Downing Street was blindsided when the EU revealed that Spain would have a veto on whether a Brexit deal would apply to Gibraltar. An opportunistic paragraph by Spain backed by a cynical Brussels or a wholly predictable development that the government should have foreseen exposing its lack of preparation and flexibility for the negotiating task ahead?
1: So, Catherine, this is very exciting, presumably, for a diplomatic correspondent at The Times, when you think we've got a war on our hands. Um, (laughs) Over the weekend, we seem to be piling in to declaring war on Spain. Just explain, for people who haven't, who had better things to do at the weekend, just explain how we got from Theresa May's letter to the EU to declaring Mm -hmm. war on Spain
2: just to clarify it wasn't the government that declared war on spain it was michael howard um, <laughs> um and uh yes ter- theresa may has uh, has tried to sort of walk that back a little bit um so uh, it, theresa may's article 50 letter did not contain any reference to the status of gibraltar um and it is uh, there are certain ver- different versions of why this happened um One is that DEXU, the Department for Exiting the EU, decided it wasn't needed, whereas the Foreign Office wanted it in, or that, in fact, everyone decided not to put it in because they didn't think anyone would notice or react and make Spain bring it up. Uh, In fact, obviously, there was a huge reaction when uh, the EU returned with its guidelines on Friday and said that Spain would have uh, a veto over whether any deal with Britain would apply to Gibraltar um, at this stage uh, Michael Harrod <laughs> chose to go nuclear and uh, compared uh, Gibraltar to the Falklands and said that previous uh, female Prime Minister had uh, sent the Royal Navy um, to defend our overseas territory um, now if you want to take... The, the, the EU seemed very surprised by this. Uh, if you want to take a... Well, we all were. We were just
1: <laughs> having a quiet Sunday.
2: <laughs> if you want to take a very sober view of it, um you could have predicted this would happen. Uh You may recall, if you pay attention to such minutia, that um the Belgian uh, region of Wallonia managed to hold up an entire EU trade deal with Canada um, and that the EU may have thought we don't want that sort of scenario happening again if we write this in for spain giving them a veto over that particular application of a deal then we won't end up with the whole deal being held up right at the end so in a sense it's a it's a rather pragmatic eu um move that was met by some hysteria on the british side
3: oliver what do you think is this cock-up or conspiracy what, what what's gone wrong here uh, it's a massive cock-up hmm. um I think Catherine is uh, being characteristically gracious in her assessment of (laughs) Lord Howard. Uh, Our leader today on the subject uh, refers to John Stuart Mill's famous designation of the Conservatives as the stupidest party. And Lord Howard is bent on exemplifying that epithet. He plainly did not understand the issue. And indeed, this is characteristic of the uh, rather gung ho wing of the Brexiteers that they neither foresaw the diplomatic obstacles nor understood the trade issues involved. Lord Howard patently, completely misunderstood the issue as an EU claim backing Spain's, uh, an EU uh, declaration backing Spain's bid for sovereignty, claim for sovereignty over Gibraltar. It was nothing like it. It was, uh, as you would expect, the EU backing the interests of its member states in disputes with, as Britain will be in due course, a non-member. The idea that this was tantamount to a declaration of intent to invade Gibraltar (laughs) is so absurd that uh, it's tempting to laugh at Lord Howard, but he's not funny. He's done a good deal of damage to British interests by a fatuous misunderstanding of a very complex and sensitive issue.
1: Sam, there was a feeling amongst some uh, on Sunday morning at least that actually this had played okay because it was Spain who was seen to have caused trouble. In Brussels, and the the Brussels line had been everyone, everything needs to go through Brussels. We can't have individual countries going off and picking off issues and co- you know. So it was Spain who'd put Gibraltar on the table. We hadn't. We'd been uh, sort of behaving ourselves, but that sort of didn't last the day. That was that was the problem.
4: Yes, I mean, the problem is that this is enormous. It, it's been a, a sort of enormously jolly on one in, on one level. It's, there's been a sort of great deal of heat and light, but but I think there are two important questions. The first is. Um, weren't we already always going to have, at some point in the 18 months of the negotiation, a discussion, a row, a bust-up, a falling out, a tantrum with Spain over Gibraltar? It's happened to happen at the start, but uh, it was always going to come, I think, and pretty much everybody acknowledged that. And secondly, I think the question is, um, despite the uh, intemperate and um, probably extremely unwise words of uh, Lord Howard, uh, on on Sunday, which needless, needlessly raised the political temperature, has it changed in any way materially the outcome of what's happening? Uh, has it given us an insight into what's happening uh, that we didn't have before? And you know, Lord Howard, who wasn't sanctioned by Downing Street, is um, uh, not quite a backbencher, a, a, a just a member of the, a, another Conservative member of the House of Lords. To give him his full dignity and grace, does not have any bearing directly on this debate or on this negotiation. So whilst it allows people to um, carry out a certain kind of European negotiation dance of which we like to write about I'm not sure that the events of the last four days have materially changed the outcome of Brexit or what's going to happen. So I think, that, I th- I think m- the issue for me is um, we are going to have a number of these. Um, they're going to generate uh, a sparky public debate but it's unclear whether that tells us anything material about what's going on inside the negotiations or what's going to happen at the end or at the different points where it needs to come back uh, to be ratified by parliament and possibly not a lot. Catherine what's the impact do you think on the European perception
1: of Britain Mm -hmm. and the sort of people they're dealing with that two days after that a relatively sober parking security but a relatively sober letter sent from Theresa May sort of turns into this slightly crackers 48 hours of of behaviour.
2: Um, it was foreseen. Uh, I spoke to European diplomats based in London immediately after the letter was uh, was issued and they mostly said that there was some disquiet over the linkage of security um, with a trade or security cooperation and they called that unsubtle, but they saw it as a negotiating tactic. What most people predicted was, well, it, you know, this is less belligerent than Theresa May has been in the past in her Lancaster House speech. The problem is, can she bring back from Brussels something that, um, w- you know, will not cause hysteria amongst the hardliners here, the hardline pro-Brexit lobby? And that is who the, 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 the Europeans are most concerned about. Their ability to cause a row, as Lord Howard has just done over something, and to shift the blame onto the yeah. EU. So if she can't, if, 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 if every, time there is a stumble it is turned around Or look at brussels look what they're doing to us you turn public opinion against in fact something that might be better for britain too um,
4: but if you i mean just looking at this issue dispassionately take take michael howard aside what struck me was how quite a lot of the hardline brexiteers didn't really jump on this bandwagon um you have more or less up to 60 people who could put enormous pressure on Theresa May within her parliamentary party in the Commons, you had barely a handful piling in on this occasion. Um, you could actually make 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 the case that Lord Howard aside, what we saw over the last few days was an example of restraint rather than gung-ho um, bullying from those on the, on, on, on the right um, and actually put this in a slightly slightly different narrative. There weren't great hordes of Brexiteers, as we saw, for instance, during the National Insurance Row, as we saw uh, during um, the EU referendum, where 30, 40, 50 Tory MPs are piling in to effect change on the government. That just didn't happen. So, yes, Michael Howard was cheeky, but I don't think he changed a lot.
3: <laughs> if Sam wants to talk this down, I'd prefer to talk it up. Yes, Lord Howard you want more? is... Lord Howard is an essentially <laughs> trivial figure, but try to explain this to our European partners. Former, he, is, he is a Former leader of the Conservative Party, and his uh, the surprising thing is not that there were few people backing him, but that this former senior politician uh, made a
4: preposterous remark. <laughs>
1: As a he makes it uh, sort of exclusive to all outlets.
4: Uh, you Before- know, p- p- prosperous, which is why he wasn't elected by the British people to be prime minister <laughs> in two thousand and five. But the, but I, but, yeah. the, but, the, but my point my point my point is not to play up or play down. It is simply I don't think we learned anything that no we fair, didn't yeah. know yeah. about him about Brexit. And also, to be fair, I'm looking for when this catches fire. This did not catch fire, and the material outcome of Brexit didn't change. So we are in danger of overinterpreting, in my view.
2: The person who enjoyed the most the spectacle of one NATO member uh, threatening another was probably Vladimir Putin. So it was probably outside of Europe. that He's
1: gripped by Michael Howard's every utterance, (laughs) I imagine. Before we move on, I I just want to check. I assume we're all very excited about getting blue passports. This is the most... terrific news to come off the back of Brexit. Oliver, you look like a man who's, who's thought of little else since June the 23rd.
3: I, uh, Despite my youthful and vigorous appearance, I am old enough to remember blue and gold passports and I much prefer the soft backed red ones from the EU. I shall be sorry to lose them.
1: Or as Andrew Rosendale, the Tory MP, said it, has been a source of national humiliation <laughs> that you've been carrying around, one of those pink pink
4: things in your pocket. Uh, yes. Well, I've got. Um, uh, I'm going to have my cake and eat it because I will be. Uh, I will have my blue English British passport and I will also have my uh, pink um, Irish passport. For I am a uh, dual national. There we are. are. You excited, Catherine, about your blue passport?
2: Um, well, like Oliver, I can also remember the blue one. Um, uh, now I'm. I'm just uh, preoccupied with whether I'll have to have a Scottish one as well. <laughs>
4: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk <laughs>
1: That's a whole new uh, conversation. Um, but let's move on uh, from Brexit. If there's, As well as the the uh, conversation going on with Brussels, there's a whole new conversation going on with the rest of the world, which is all about trade. Uh, Oliver Camp.
3: The Prime Minister's tour of the Middle East to drum up interest in potential post-Brexit trade deals is not merely futile but counterproductive. Britain's trade interests inevitably lie with big and geographically close economies, not with small and distant ones. Mrs May should be devoting her time to ensuring the closest and deepest possible links for the UK with the European single market. There is no way that free trade agreements with other economies, even supposing these were ready by 2019, could replicate what we are losing. It may seem undignified to plead with the EU 27 for concessions, but that's nothing compared with the genuflections that the government appears intent upon with the autocracies of Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait and Oman, without so much as mentioning their violations of human rights."
1: So this is particularly pertinent this week because Theresa May is on a tour of the Gulf. She's uh, in Saudi Arabia. Um, She said when she arrived in Saudi Arabia that just her visit alone would act as an example to Saudi Arabia of what women can achieve. Do you think that's enough to
3: to counter their not-great human rights record? (coughs) (laughs) I I hadn't heard that comment. It is... uh highly imaginative speculation that's extremely unlikely to be true on the political front. My uh, particular objection to uh, the rhetoric of her visit is more on the economic side, the notion that by pursuing not free trade, but bilateral preferential trade agreements with anyone who will do it with us, we are somehow... <laughs> Uh, compensating for what we'll lose from the European single market is so absurd that uh, I think it needs to be torn apart.
1: Sam, do you think they're conscious of this? Do do the the ministers, because it's not just Theresa May, uh, Philip Hammond is touring the Globe this week, so is Liam Fox, do you think deep down they know that they were not big money deals to be done here they just it, it's it's more about sort of virtue signaling of the enthusiasm for global trade rather than the the pound shilling and some pence that they might get from it
4: i think i think the argument that they would use and I, and i have some sympathy for is that um uh, this isn't to use a common westminster piece of parlance at the moment this isn't a binary choice in the way that oliver presents it, um, you have two different things. You have the need to negotiate a free trade deal with the European Union um, and then separate to that you have the need to Build stronger trade relations with a series of countries that are, you know, have big sovereign wealth funds and are uh, can plough money into the, the UK economy from, you know, Wolverhampton through to Edinburgh, through to uh, uh, through through to the southeast of England. Um, I think that everybody up to and including Philip Hammond would say that what we need to be doing is both of those things. It isn't a trade off between the two. Um, if you believe that we're going genuflecting, to use Oliver's word too much, um, uh, ignoring not playing a hard enough ball with um, Saudi and uh, uh, other Gulf states um, on human rights in order to advance that argument. Well, that is probably quite possibly true, particularly in the eyes of the public. It's a debate we've been having for the better part of 40 years, stretching back to Margaret Thatcher and al and the arms deals and BAE and all of that kind of thing. It is an argument as old as the hills. It's a good argument to have, but it seems to me slightly distinct from the separate argument about um, whether or not we we get the very important tr- uh, trade deal that we desperately need with the European Union uh, in order to continue trading there. I think they, in Whitehall, they say, let's do both, and I can't see any harm in that position. Catherine,
1: what actually is the impact? Because whenever a politician from Britain goes to a country with a bad human rights record, there's always a question that journalists ask: Are you going to raise human rights? And they say, of course, you know, nothing is off the table. Mm. But then, obviously, no, nothing happens as a result of Theresa May saying, and of course, there's the human rights issue. So, what is the what is is the point of that sort of diplomatic dance? Well, is it she... more about? Is it actually more about the politics in our country than anything that's going on in theirs?
2: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, the Obviously, I mean, human rights have um, played uh, a different role in foreign policy at different times for the British government. Um, It was Robin Cook's famous ethical foreign policy. Um, And recently, before a Foreign Affairs uh, Committee, um, Permanent Secretary at the Foreign Office... Confirmed that uh, human rights are no longer a priority. Uh, trade and prosperity are, are greater priorities. But yes, Theresa May has to say those things because actually there is an intense interest in, in uh, um, Saudi Arabia and its human rights records in this country in particular, actually more so than in many other European countries because we have this long-standing relationship. Um, and people don't like the optics of the genuflection to... Um, Two regimes like that. Uh, The foreign office's position at the moment is that uh, we exercise quiet diplomacy and we say things in quiet, you know, in private rather than out loud. Um, I think we should be duly sceptical as to how hard those issues are currently pushed even in private. Uh, I'm not convinced they are, and I'm not convinced that they are very much more than token in, in, in many uh, respects. You know, there will be discrete issues such as, as death sentences on juveniles that, that may just sort of be mentioned so that it can be recorded they have been mentioned. Whether any pressure is applied, I'm, I'm quite um, sceptical.
3: Sometimes being very public in your criticisms of human rights and indeed tying it to trade has a beneficial effect this was the case in the years of détente uh, with the soviet union when the jackson vanick amendment um, i forget the exact year it was the early 70s tied trade between the us and the soviet union to concessions on jewish emigration it was to critics, uh, rail politics, critics like Henry Kissinger, it was a piece of grandstanding, but it actually had an effect. It had a beneficial effect. I think it's undignified for Theresa May to uh, to pursue with such amorality a trade strategy that makes no sense on economic grounds anyway.
1: We talked uh, a couple of months ago on the podcast, Melanie Phillips was on, and she was she was concerned about our arms deals with Saudi Arabia. And actually, the conversation was about my enemy's enemy is my friend, and that actually Saudi Arabia is an ally in uh, conflicts against whether it's uh, ISIS, al-Qaeda, the threat from Iran, uh, what's happening in Yemen – so it's these things. Although it's quite easy for someone to write on a placard, we shouldn't be, speak, you know, we shouldn't be selling arms to them, or we shouldn't be speaking to them. D- d- global politics is more
4: more complicated than that. Yeah, uh, One of the interesting and difficult and challenging things about the politics around Saudi Arabia and, and many of the Gulf states is that, that there is, as with all areas of diplomatic life, a trade-off to be had. Um, you've got trade and human rights and other areas, but the British government seems absolutely intent on not allowing us to have the discussion about what that trade-off is in public. Look, there is no doubt that there is some important and valuable information sharing intelligence information sharing coming from Saudi we are of course not allowed to know what that is but there is also the perception in my mind of a shift in the government's attitude towards human rights. Look at what Boris said about um, the possibility of Turkey bringing about the death penalty and result uh, following the coup last year uh, we do seem to be less opposed to that than we might have expected to be in the past so there is a shift where I um, depart from the government completely is the unwillingness of people in Number 10 or the Foreign Office to really want us to have that debate armed with the kind of facts of the trade-offs that they are making um, so and, and just um, just sending out the message, trust, trust us, we know best. I'm not sure they do and I think they should allow us a little bit more information to, to make that judgement um, mm. for ourselves.
2: Well, I was going to say, you know, I mean, we've heard some what happens when that debate bursts into uh, the open, when Boris Johnson made his remarks actually about Saudi's sectarian meddling in the Middle East being um, analogous to that of Iran on the others on the Shia side, um, but I, I agree with Sam. I mean, it's that that um, debate is being shut down, and um, these trade-offs are important. And one person who's been very vocal about this, uh, in the case of Saudi and Yemen, is Andrew Mitchell, who recently went to Yemen and talked about um, British-made bombs landing on British-sponsored uh, schools and destroying them in Yemen, and how are um, trade and defence and foreign policy is working against our, our aid um, contributions there and in, a, in the most baffling way, sort of cancelling each other out um, so it, I do think Sam's right, it has to be part of the conversation
1: well, It was a fascinating subject I'm sure it's one we'll uh, return to again but now let's uh, let's bring things home Sam and talk a bit more about domestic politics. Sam Coates
4: after 12 years watching the Westminster scene, there are still things that utterly baffle me. Um, and one of them is the just how badly and uh, timidly national politicians are at explaining things. Now, it, it was really brought home to me on the radio this morning. We had, uh, it's Tuesday morning right now, and we had Damien Green here on the radio to launch the overhaul that he's doing of the Troubled Families programme. The Trou- Troubled Fa- Families programme was the uh, flagship initiative of David Cameron to try and help uh, families that found themselves in difficulty. The argument was that a high proportion of people from those sorts of families found themselves in difficulty later in life, so if there could be early intervention, the state could try and step in and help them at an earlier stage. Maybe maybe that would uh, th- that would change the, um, their outcomes. Um, it hasn't worked, famously. Big studies have shown that. And what Damon Green was doing on the radio was trying to pretend that he was changing almost nothing. At the same time, a few minutes later, you had Sadiq Khan, mayor of London, introducing in a few years' time a congestion charging scheme for diesel vehicles in London. Big, bold, clear communication. Why is Sadiq Khan able to paint in big primary colours when he's doing his politics, but Damien Green and other cabinet ministers not? Not. The thing that immediately occurs to me is, is it because national
1: politicians do do big things and local, or you know, devolved politicians try to make small things sound bigger to emphasise their importance?
4: There is definitely the ability of national politicians to do big things. But the question is, why try and underplay what you're doing rather than overplaying it? That that to me still makes no sense and I, I, I think the reason that they do it is because they feel totally hemmed in by uh the sort of um, nervousness about how any new announcement might land fear of the media um, fear of being seen to in some way breach the manifesto that they were uh, elected on be feared, the fear of getting too big for your boots and getting criticism from cabinet colleagues fear of doing something too well and attracting the ire of Downing Street you wouldn't believe how often that does actually happen and all of that means that I think the public are quite short changed that you don't have some top flight communicators explaining what governments successive governments, it isn't particularly a Tory problem, have done in any, particularly good, uh, in any particularly clear way. Michael Fallon was on the radio earlier this week. There's going to have to be, because of the state of the British public finances, a kind of reorganisation of the way that the armed forces, particularly the, the special forces, operate. He went out of the way to try and minimise the suggestion that anything was going on at all. The sort of timidity to suggest change at a national level... Um, uh, and the contrast with that at a local level, where you've got Sadiq Khan doing that, you've got Andy Street trying to pretend that he's going to have a role in where Channel Four is going to be braced with Karen Bradley uh, 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 in the in the West Midlands yesterday. All of these things just show that you can, pray, you know, explain in a clearer fashion what's going on in, in in politics. But national politicians at the moment, by and large, are trying to to um, uh, to to not do that uh, in as far as is possible, not to upset the apple cart.
1: Oliver, it is this amazing phenomenon where number 10 will let a minister make an announcement on condition they don't commit any news in doing so. You've allowed, you know, you put out your press release, but that's all you're allowed to to, to do.
3: Yes, listening to Sam's contrast uh, between a cabinet minister and a municipal politician, albeit the, uh, the mayor of a great cosmopolitan capital city, it strikes me that, um, you know, to a certain extent, a municipal politician has more opportunity to make big eye-catching, bold commitments, the congestion charge in the first place was just such a policy, something that was was too controversial initially for a national government to deal with, makes total economic sense and has improved uh, both finances and the quality of life in London. There's also the phenomenon that some politicians uh, on all sides get off to a poor start, aren't particularly fluent in communicating, don't know how to handle a microphone. And I don't think it's unfair of us in the media to do this, but we point it out and there <laughs> there comes a sort of uh, a feedback loop. Jeremy Corbyn is a perfect example. Everyone knows. Everyone who knew Jeremy Corbyn before he became leader of the Labour Party knew, and I said this in columns myself, that he was not... Not even his closest friends would say a grasp of policy detail was his most salient (laughs) characteristic. He's not good at communicating with voters. And he's become worse and worse as time goes on, and it will become worse and worse. That's partly our fault, though I don't think we should uh, apologise for it, because we're simply reporting the fact that he's not very good.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He's almost not news anymore, but it's always worth worth Uh, repeating.
3: Every time he comes unstuck again, I grow more astonished at his incompetence.
1: Catherine, we've got a Prime Minister um, who sort of made a name for herself by not committing news for almost six years at the Home Office. And I sort of wonder if in that parallel universe where Boris Johnson is prime minister, actually the licence for all ministers to be as freewheeling as perhaps he would be, we'd have a completely different style of government. That Actually, the ministers take their lead from who's at the top.
2: Um, well, yes, I, I was interested that Sam um, put this question in, in the span of his 12 years in, mm. in Westminster and I was keen to ask him whether he felt like it. it this was a different environment to those that had come before. I mean, it's, it does seem like we have got quite a control um number 10 at the moment and that that has um, an impact on it. And I, I also wonder whether um, there's an issue of ownership, whether, you know, are, are ministers really sold on, on things that they are announcing and do they have a sense of ownership, or are they tr- sort of almost trying not to have the blame ricochet back on them? um uh, the, It's an amusing thought how uh, freewheeling um, the discourse might be if Boris were in charge. <laughs> um, I think we can only speculate about that. But yes, it, it I feel we
4: might be at war with Spain. Uh,
2: I think we might well be at <laughs> war with Spain.
4: Look, I think uh, I think things have changed, and not necessarily for the better, over those over those twelve years. Uh, just some names to conjure with: you've got sort of David Blunkett, you've got. John Reid. When I started in about 2005, these were people who made big and punchy interventions, not necessarily politically ideological. In fact, quite a lot on the Tory side. were quite admire some of the things that those two individual politicians did, but they had the licence and the grit and the heavyweight um, uh, approach to stuff to say something needs to change. I'm going to do it, which um, which is very different for today. And I, I and I would gently suggest that 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 maybe this isn't actually what particularly voters. Want Theresa May, as as Matt says, is the ultimate continuity politician. She's doing Brexit, but she's almost trying to pretend that as few things as possible will will change as a result of Brexit. Um, uh, that in itself is a uh, is a political tactic that carries some pretty big dangers. Um, but the question is whether or not that's actually where the British public are. I think one of the reasons that she herself identifies that people voted for Brexit is because they actually feel rather urgently that they want things to change. Um, so if you've got a, an electorate that wants change and a prime minister saying it's all going to be the same and trying to, uh, trying to suggest and encourage, and that's a polite term, her ministers to um, lean uh, against kind of looking like they're doing big things, then I think that you... Then risk the danger of disappointing uh, the same group of voters now i think if you were if you're in whitehall you might say well we're doing uh, stuff with grammar schools but that of course is just small and a pilot and incremental you're um changing some of the funding around uh, social care but again that's small incremental we haven't really seen the results of that um you aren't seeing any great big transformation programs people are now too scared to do anything big i think the voters would be quite keen if they did because they see big problems in their everyday life that's a disconnect that i just wonder whether it opens up a route for somebody Emmanuel Macron style to come in and just do it differently, because clearly there's a bit of an appetite for that in some parts of the country.
2: I feel like we've got a dearth of conviction politicians uh, at the top of the country right now. And that, that's absolutely inbuilt, isn't it? We have a prime minister who campaigned for Remain, perhaps in a lukewarm fashion, but she did nonetheless. Uh, we have Boris Johnson who wrote two um, <laughs> <laughs> wrote arguments for, for, for Brexit and for Remain um, uh, side by side. Um, we, we've got a lot of people here, who, and, and who says one thing about Saudi in pu- public and one in private. So I think we've got a lot of people advancing um policy that they they don't they're not conviction politicians and
4: let's I, not mention the words Justin greening I, I,
2: I wouldn't dream of it um but I I imagine that the British public there would Tony Blair may have put us off conviction politicians for a while perhaps we're we're ready for one again um um David Cameron wasn't one and we haven't had any for a while so I think that that, that, that people communicate when they feel passionately about something and I suggest I Think there is a lack of passion. Oliver,
1: well, there is also a real uh, absence of big beasts. We've uh, I've been reflecting on the fact it's twenty years since the ninety seven election, and I suspect if you ask the public now, they'd do a better job of naming Tony Blair's first cabinet than the current one. You know, you had Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, John Prescott, Jack Straw, Robin Cook. You know, the idea that that people outside the Westminster bubble wouldn't even know who Justin Greening was, never mind Chris Grayling or
3: Jeremy Hunt or. I I caution against romanticising the past, and I do this myself when I think of, let's say, let's go back to hapless Jeremy Corbyn. Um, uh, (laughs) 41 years ago, there was a Labour Party leadership election in which um, the candidates included Dennis Healy, James Callaghan, Roy Jenkins, Tony Crossland, Tony Benn, Michael Foote. These were all very substantial personalities. No woman stood, of course. These are all very uh, substantial personalities, whereas now we have Jeremy Corbyn, who's quite obviously not up to the job. Yet, let's go back to your example of the first Blair cabinet. Uh, Probably not many people in... uh, Not many voters could name more than a couple of the names you came out with. And who now remembers David Clark? Gavin Strang. Uh, (laughs) These were members of Tony Blair's first cabinet. Um, And on the question of conviction politicians themselves, um, to me, the greatest political truth is the Isaiah Berlin argument for pluralism not every good thing is compatible some values are not commensurable with each other they aren't measurable on the same scale and i'd rather a government was aware of that uh, perhaps tragic truth than uh, be an ideological one regardless of to go back to a term that Sam used trade-offs in another context
1: well it's fascinating stuff Uh, but i'm afraid we're gonna have to leave it there we've uh, run out of time uh, as ever, you can sign up to my morning email briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox email. You can also tweet us at Times Redbox and find us on Facebook. And remember, you can subscribe to the Redbox podcast via iTunes on your Android device so it gets delivered to your phone every week. But for now, from Oliver Cam, Sam Coates, Catherine Philp and me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.